Father God, we come before you give you praise for all that you are. We thank you, Lord God, for your son, Jesus Christ, most of all. Lord, we are grateful to you that we have the opportunity to stand in this place and give glory to your name, learning more about who you are, so we can do as you've called us to do, and that is go out and make disciples. Well, Lord, we're not asked to sit in these seats and remain here fixed in a position just to continually learn. We have to take what we've learned and go. And Lord God, we pray that that's what we would do. As we learn about who you are more this day, we would take this out with us and we'd go to our jobs and we'd, we'd go to the places where we, we have uh, recreation and where we shop and all of those things and we would boldly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, through our actions, but also through our words. And so we pray this day that you would embolden us and give us what was needed in order for us to carry forward your mission for tomorrow and till the ends of time. We pray this in your son's name and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We've been marching through Acts over the last couple of weeks, and we've encountered quite a bit up to this point. And I, and I know we're only going into the fourth chapter, but so far as the uh, Bible project has kind of laid out for us, Jesus has given his final instruction and promised a helper to his disciples. The disciples were, bore witness to Jesus ascending, as well as uh, they were baptized with these tongues of fire, which gave them the ability to profess the name of Jesus Christ to countless numbers. In fact, when we read in it, it said that 3,000 were added to that number in that one day. Two weeks ago, we read that John and Peter miraculously healed a cripple. Peter then takes time to address the crowd, presenting to them the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And that's where Dave kind of ended off a couple of weeks ago. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to have them with you and open up to ch uh, Acts chapter 4. Now normally Brian is, is able to put the, the scriptures up here, but to be truthful, I didn't give him a whole lot for this message. And so if he's staying with me on this, I will be amazed because uh, he's just going to be going by guessing here what I'm going to be reading. So if you have your Bibles, pull them out, open up to Acts chapter 4 because you can use those to make sure that what I'm actually saying to you is, is in God's Word. All right? So what we have happening in Acts chapter 1, I'm just going to give you a little bit of an overview to start things off. At the end of Acts chapter 3, Peter's been there and he's presenting the gospel to the church. And at some point in time, John jumps in with him because it says in Acts chapter 4 verse 1, as they were speaking to the people. So here you have Peter and John in the temple speaking to the people about the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And we're just going to go ahead and take a little bit of a read of what happens. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came up to them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So suddenly Peter and John are interrupted as the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees come upon them. They're extremely upset, and they basically tell these two to stop proclaiming in Jesus' name the resurrection of the dead. They arrested Peter and John after this. They put them in jail overnight, and the next day they brought them in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Although they were on trial before the intimidating council, Peter quickly turns the tables on the Sanhedrin, showing it was they who were on trial in true fact. 
He points out that it was not a crime to do a good deed to a cripple. Then he indicts the Sanhedrin because they had crucified Jesus, whom God had raised from the dead, and in whose name the lame man had been healed. Furthermore, Peter lets them know in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, that there is salvation, that, sorry, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The members of the council were amazed at the confidence of Peter and John, who had not been educated in the rabbinical schools. When the council saw the man who had been healed standing there as proof positive of his healing, they really had nothing to say. The council commanded Peter and John not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John replied that they had to obey God because they could not stop speaking what they had seen and heard. After further warning, the council that let them go, since the crowd was glorifying God on account of the miracle that had taken place. Peter and John are dismissed, and they go out and meet with the fellowship of believers, and they pray for continued boldness as they see more resistance coming in the future. This is actually fairly profound for you and I this morning. Because as Peter and John were commanded to stop speaking, most of us in the church need to be reminded of the command to speak to others about Jesus Christ. Many modern Christians think that Jesus' great commission was really just a great suggestion. We think that it implies to those who are called into missionary work or, or to a pastor or something of that set, but not to the rest of us. But every believer should be able to say with Peter and John, even under threat of persecution, I cannot stop speaking about what I have seen and heard. If we are prone to be timid witnesses of Christ, we should pray that the Lord would give us a confident boldness that we need to speak out for Christ even if we suffer for it. We all should seek to be confident witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's going to take on the body of what we're going to be talking about today. I want to use Acts chapter 4 to help highlight four characteristics of a confident witness of which each and every person in this room and those watching online can all be a part of. The first characteristic that we come to that is very evident in Acts chapter 4 is that a confident witness is filled with the Holy Spirit. The picture, to picture this scene correctly, we need to understand how threatening it was for Peter and John to be in front of the council. You see, the Sanhedrin was like the Supreme Court and the legislation all rolled up into one. They had religious and, to a great degree, civil authority in Jerusalem. The high priest was the most powerful Jew in the city, and the captain of the temple guard was really second to him. Furthermore, they had just been the main force behind the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Even if they didn't go so far as to crucify Peter and John, they certainly could make life very uncomfortable for them. They were very, very powerful men. The fact that they arrested Peter and John 
kept them overnight in jail, and then threatened them with dire consequences if they continued speaking in Jesus' name, shows that they weren't afraid to use their power to intimidate. We also need to remember that several weeks earlier, Peter, in order to avoid possible arrest, had denied that he knew Jesus Christ to a lowly servant girl who was then also in the company of this great Sanhedrin. So outside of this Sanhedrin, Peter denies Christ some several weeks earlier, now presented before the Sanhedrin, is boldly going to profess the name of Jesus Christ. But here he is now before the most powerful body of men in Jewish culture, boldly reminding them that they had crucified Jesus, that God had raised him from the, from the dead, and that he is God's only way to salvation. If Peter had been fearful, he would have said only what he thought necessary to secure his release. But instead, he boldly witnesses to these murderers of Jesus. The question is, what made the difference? Well, we can actually read that in Acts chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and the elders, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Some by nature may be more daring souls than others. But here we're not talking about natural inclination. Here we're talking about supernatural power. If we want to be like Peter and John, who, as we will see later, were like Jesus, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had told the disciples that they would be brought before the rulers but not to worry in advance about what to say because the Holy Spirit would teach them in the very hour that they want, that, uh, what, what to say when they were in need. We read that in Luke chapter 12. Later again, he told them that they would be brought before the rulers for his namesake and that it would lead to an opportunity for their testimony. He promised that he would give them the utterances and wisdom which none of their opponents would be able to resist or refute, we read in Luke 21. So Peter's witness before the Sanhedrin was not due to his natural boldness or to his brilliant oratory. It was due to the filling of the Holy Spirit. So this brings us to a very important point. Spirit-filled witnesses are controlled by God's Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. Here again, Peter and John were filled with the Spirit. After they were released, they joined with their companions and had a prayer meeting, and at the end of which, or at the end of that prayer meeting in 431, they too were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, some of us more rigid types get uncomfortable talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit. We feel after we are filled with the Holy Spirit, the next step is to get flags and dance in the aisles or start rolling around on the floor. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what happens when we have the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And I want to explain this. In Acts chapter 5 verse 17, we read that the high priests and the Sanhedrin associates were filled with jealousy. It means that jealousy so overwhelmed them that it controlled their actions. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul commands us not to get drunk with wine, but to be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Just as a drunk is under the influence or control of alcohol, so a spirit-filled man is under the control of the Holy Spirit. So assuming that you are a believer here in this room, the main requirement for being filled with the Holy Spirit is to be cleansed from all sin and to be yielded to the Spirit's will. A Spirit-filled person is not a person that is directed by self-will, but rather is submissive to God's will. Since the Holy Spirit's main ministry is to glorify Jesus Christ, which we read about in John 16, verse 14, a person who is filled with the Spirit will seek to glorify Jesus as well. So a Spirit-filled witness is controlled by the Holy Spirit of equal importance, though, is that a Spirit-filled witness obeys God rather than men, even under threat of persecution. Most of us don't know much about for, or much firsthand about what persecution for the sake of Christ is. The threat of someone rejecting us or thinking that we're weird is enough to make cowards of us when it comes to witnessing. I mean, if you sit here and you think back about it, we've all been there. We haven't shared Jesus Christ because it felt weird. See, we don't know what, what it means to be under threat. We don't know what the council said by way of threats, but 421 indicates that they were not vague about the fact that if Peter and John continued to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they would pay a severe price. But rather than saying, yes, sir, we'll, we'll be more restrained in the future, they said, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Then they went back to their friends and prayed for greater boldness than they already had. See, there are two common misconceptions that we need to keep in mind regarding opposition or persecution of our faith. The first is that if we're faithful to the Lord, he will protect us from persecution. See, I've heard many Christians say something like, I don't understand why this is happening. I was faithful to the Lord, but I'm being attacked by my co-workers or friends. Why isn't the Lord protecting me? I don't know where this idea comes from, because it's clearly not in the Bible. The Old Testament prophets were bold and faithful witnesses, but many of them were persecuted and even killed. John the Baptist, the Twelve, the Apostle Paul, and the Lord Jesus himself all were faithful witnesses who suffered much because of their faithfulness to God. Paul promised indeed in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The second misconception is that persecution comes mainly from outside the church. We expect the pagans to oppose the name of Jesus, but for some reason we're surprised when those who profess to be Christians attack us. But it was the religious establishment that opposed the prophets the most. The religious, the religious leaders opposed and crucified our Lord. Here the religious leaders are the ones leading the opposition against the apostles. The Sadducees were mainly wealthy priests who wanted to protect that status. 
So in order to preserve their wealth and influence over Jewish affairs, they tried to control what was said. Thus, they were loyal to the Roman government and opposed any kind of uprising or disturbance among the people that might upset Rome. And then, so as to being down, or sorry, so as it, is, as it has been down through church history, oppositions to those who preach the gospel and who uphold God's word often come from the religious establishment, whose power and privilege are threatened. In countries where the Roman Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church are strong, they are the source of the most opposition to the gospel. In fact, we just heard that last week in Alex's testimony. Their power and wealth would be threatened if they had to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. In our country, theological liberals who deny a literal hell or affirm LGBTQ etc. rhetoric or buy into critical race theory are often the church's main opponent. And we are surprised. But spirit-filled witnesses are bold to obey God rather than religious establishments, even if it means persecution. If we want to be confident witnesses, we must daily be filled with God's Spirit. Which leads us to our second characteristic. Confident witnesses have spent much time with Jesus and learned from Him. The council was amazed at Peter and John's boldness, especially since they were uneducated, untrained men. But they also began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. The boldness of Peter and John reminded the council of the boldness of Jesus Christ, who was also not trained in their schools. What a wonderful compliment for people to recognize that we are like Jesus because we have been with him. We often say that we want to be like Jesus, but we have misconceptions of what this is like. Some years ago, a man who had served as a leader at the church I was attending in Red Deer, he was also on the staff of an evangelical ministry, approached the pastor of the church at the time after an adult Sunday school that I had led. I had just challenged some of their view of basic Christian doctrine and had demonstrated why I thought it was the way it was, uh, and they, among others, were quite offended. They told the pastor to tell me that I should not be leading the adult Sunday school because I was too much like the Apostle Paul and not enough like Jesus. When I asked for clarification, the pastor said that Paul was confrontational, but Jesus was always kind and loving. I chuckled. In what translation were they reading? Matthew 23, Jesus confronted the scribes and the Sadducees, or sorry, and the Pharisees, calling them nonetheless hypocrites, whitewashed walls, and a brood of vipers. In Luke 11, Jesus was invited to a lunch at a Pharisee's house. He deliberately avoided the Pharisaical ceremonial washing before the meal. And when his host said something, Jesus pronounced woes upon the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. Another guest, a religious lawyer, pointed out that Jesus had offended and insulted them as well, so Jesus pronounced more woes on the lawyers for their hypocrisy. On many occasions, Jesus deliberately did something to provoke controversy. The point is, if we're going to be like Jesus, 
we will be bold witnesses who confront religious hypocrisy and false doctrine. We won't be mean or rude. We will have the fruit of the Spirit, including kindness and gentleness, which is something I'm still working on. But we will have, in, we will have spent enough time with Jesus to learn from him. The importance of speaking out when God's truth is being compromised. We will fear God more than we fear social customs or what people think of us. Which brings us to our fourth, third characteristic. Confident witnesses testify about what they know for certain. The disciples could not stop speaking about what they had seen and heard in Acts 4.20. They had seen the risen Lord. They, had, they saw him ascend into heaven. They had heard him explain from the scriptures the many passages about himself. They had seen him heal the layman by his power and do many miraculous things. And so they spoke confidently about these matters. As you read through Acts 4, it reveals four things that they knew for certain. Jesus was risen from the dead. This was certain. Even though the Sadducees were known for not believing in the resurrection, and Peter knew that this would be a sore spot for them, he didn't hesitate to confront them with the truth. He told them boldly in verses uh, 10 and 11, Let it be known to all you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands before you in good health. boldly proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 27, that the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation of Christian faith. If it can be disproved, our faith is worthless, Paul goes on to say. F.F. Bruce states it this way, it is particularly striking, and this I found absolutely amazing, so I had to include this here because I had never really thought of it before. It is particularly striking that neither on this nor any subsequent occasion, so far as the information goes, did the Sanhedrin take any serious action to disprove the apostles' central affirmation, the resurrection of Jesus. Had it seemed possible to refute them on this point, how readily would the Sanhedrin have seized the opportunity? Had they succeeded, how quickly and completely the new movement would have collapsed. I want that to sink in. In all of the accounts that we have of the Acts of the Apostles and Paul, everything on after, how many times did the Jewish leaders have opportunity to refute the resurrection of Jesus Christ? And yet they never do. When we bear witness about Jesus Christ, we can confidently proclaim the fact of his bodily resurrection from the dead. We also know for certain Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Peter here mentions, one, that Jesus was a chief cornerstone or capstone that the builders rejected, which we read in Psalm 118.22. In all, there are some 300 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 are especially clear and detailed in describing Jesus' death on the cross. We also know for certain that Jesus performed many attested miracles. 
Hebrews 2, verses 3 through 4 says concerning our salvation. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own word. Or sorry, will the Sanhedrin could not refute that the fact of the man, or that the fact remained that the man had been crippled from birth, but now he was standing in their presence. Irrationally, they acknowledged the miracle, but they rejected the implication of it. If you read in verses four, sixteen, and seventeen, they reject the or they accept that the miracle took place, but they reject the implications of what that miracle working means. Stupendous miracles are not enough to convince those whose hearts are hardened against God. I mean, Jesus himself said it. A man could be raised from the dead and they still wouldn't believe. In fact, he was. If people refuse to believe the testimony, it is because they want to continue in their sin, not because the evidence is lacking. We also know for certain from Acts chapter 4 in the, uh, Peter and John's testimony that Jesus has saved us through his name. Peter and John knew that Jesus had changed their lives. The formerly crippled man knew that the name of Jesus had changed his life. Anyone who has called upon the Lord to save him from his sins knows that he is mighty to save even the chief of sinners. So we can confidently offer the good news of God's salvation to any and every sinner knowing that, as Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Often the most powerful witness is someone, or is someone like the lame man, whose life has been dramatically changed by the power of Jesus Christ. Your life is a witness to the lost. We've seen the confident witness of fill, uh, witnesses are filled with the Holy Spirit, they spent much time with Jesus and learned from him so that they remind others of him. They testify what they know for certain, especially that Jesus is written. Finally, the last characteristic is that confident witnesses insist on Jesus as the only way of salvation. The Sanhedrin asked Peter, by what power or in what name have you done this? So Peter told them. We did it by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Furthermore, his name is the only name by which anyone can be saved. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that, or sorry, other name under heaven that has been given among men for which we must be saved. We live in an age where tolerance has become the primary virtue. People don't object if you say, I found Jesus as my personal savior. In fact, most of them will say, well, that's nice for you, but I'm just into something else. Or they say, all that matters is that you're a good person and believe in something because all roads lead to heaven. But Jesus Christ cut straight through the tolerance of our culture and intolerantly proclaims, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is salvation in no one else. 
But we're asked, what about the sincere Buddhists or Muslims or Hindus who are kind and loving people? They are not saved unless they trust in Jesus Christ alone. You say, well, what about the faithful Roman Catholics who go to Mass, who pray the rosary, who pile up good deeds in the effort to go to heaven? They are not saved if they are depending on good works or ceremonies or religious uh, standards to get them into heaven. There is no other way to God except through faith in Christ alone. And before you get uncomfortable and possibly upset with me, remember that I didn't make this up. I'm just telling you what Jesus and the apostles proclaimed themselves. But while there is salvation in no one else, the good news is there is salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ for all who trust in him. You see, to trust Christ means to abandon trust in your own good works. It means to let go of your pride and acknowledge that you are a sinner alienated from God through your sinfulness. Like the lame man, there is no hope for you to heal yourself. Only Christ can heal your soul. And only he will save you if you will cast yourself upon him. In Ephesians chapter 6 verses 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul shares a startling prayer request. Pray on my behalf, he says, that utterances may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. To make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Twice in this passage, Paul repeats his request. That he may speak boldly. It's the same Greek word translated for confidence that we read in Acts 4 verse 13. If Paul had, as his prayer or on his prayer list, the need for boldness as a witness, then perhaps you and I should add it to our own. We all should seek to proclaim with confident boldness the good news that there is salvation in no one else except Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for all that you are. Lord God, your goodness to us is amazing. Lord, it is my heart's desire to be a bold witness of Jesus Christ for your namesake and your glory alone. And Lord, forgive my timidity when I stand aghast or afraid of saying anything about who you are because of my own awkwardness or my own fear of being weird to this culture. Lord God, I am weird. We all are. Because we have all chosen slavehood and servanthood to you, forsaking our own wants and, and our own desires to glorify you. 
that automatically makes us weird in this culture. So, Lord God, I pray that each and every one of us would be able to go from this place and speak boldly and profess with confidence the name of Jesus Christ, whom there is salvation found in no one else, so that a lost and dying world would come to a realization of who you are, so that you would get glory and honor and praise. Lord, we pray this in your Son's name, the wonderful and holy name of Jesus Christ, and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.